0: Good morning, if you're new to Faith Bible Church, I'm Pastor Steve, and it's a joy to be with you today and open up God's Word. We are starting a, a new little series in the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2 over these next few weeks. Looking at the significance that Matthew brings to us surrounding the birth of of jesus now this morning we're going to begin by looking at matthew chapter 1 verse 1 down through verse 17 in just a moment i'm going to read that out loud as i read that you may start to get a little bit worried because you're going to think to yourself what are we going to do the next half hour because this is just a genealogy this is just a list of jesus ancestors but It's going to be okay. Hang in there. We, uh, you'll see how we will, uh, find what Matthew wants us to see here in these, in these verses. So I'm going to read it out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the text. Matthew chapter one, verse one. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who'd been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob jacob was the father of joseph the husband of mary by whom jesus was born who's called the messiah so all the generations from abraham to david are 14 generations from david to the deportation to babylon 14 generations and from the deportation to babylon to the messiah 14 generations If any of you are expecting children, there's some names here that you may want to consider. They're underutilized names here in this list. When I was at Dallas Seminary, they said when you get into a list of names like this, just read them fast. No one will know the difference anyway. So, Jesus' genealogy. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about this list compared to Luke's list in chapter 3 verses 20 through, through 28 and the differences between the two lists. Or we could spend time talking about Why Mark and John don't list a genealogy. Or what is the purpose of Matthew's genealogy compared to Luke's genealogy. Or why there are names missing in the genealogies. And why are some of the names different between this genealogy and Luke's genealogy. And why are some of the names different from the genealogical list and the listing in the Old Testament. We could spend lots of time Talking about all of those things. But we're not going to do that today. All that I want us to do. Is to look at this genealogical list of Jesus. And paint two broad brush strokes. That we find here in what Matthew has recorded for us. That will help us keep and gain a fresh perspective on the significance of what we are actually celebrating here this Christmas season. Most Bible scholars, conservative Bible scholars, believe that the Apostle Matthew was the human author of this book. Uh, while his name is, while he is not named as the human author other than the title of the book that was added later, most scholars believe that the external evidence and the evidence that we find within the letter itself, within the gospel itself, would say that Matthew is the human author of the book. One of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Harold Horner, believed that the book was written very early, around 44 AD. Some believe a little later, around 50, some later than that. But most likely, Matthew was... the author of of the first uh, was the first gospel written some believe mark was most likely matthew was the first gospel written matthew's purpose we can see is to show that jesus is the messiah that jesus is the one that would fulfill the old testament Covenant promises. And he also writes to encourage Jewish believers. So we find ourselves today four weeks away from Christmas. And it's easy for us, especially in the culture in which we live, to find our thoughts, find uh, our uh, efforts. To be totally concerned by what our culture would say Christmas is all about. The problem with that is that we miss the true significance. Of what Jesus entrance into the world actually is. And so we trust that Matthew under the empowerment of the spirit of God is going to help us as a church family really focus in on the true significance of what we celebrate as we enter this christmas season and my wife barbara and i lived in dallas texas from 1983 to 1988 when we first moved to dallas we moved into the servants quarters of a huge mansion in north dallas that had tennis courts that had a pool uh, across directly across the street from where we lived there was a gigantic mansion that had little guard shacks and guards would walk the perimeter and the children would be outside playing in matching play clothes one day the guard came across to our place and knocked on our door and said would you please Move your car from the street. It's not befitting of the neighborhood. So that's where we lived. And uh, as we enjoyed our first year living in Texas. In that beautiful neighborhood. About a mile away. Was a store that everyone in Dallas talked about. It's not there anymore. It was called the original Christmas store. Dallas is known for its opulence. For the appearance at least of great wealth. And people would wait for the original Christmas store. To open right before the Christmas season. Because as you open the doors to the store. There were no windows. As you open the doors to the store. You'd be immediately greeted. With a mechanical... A display of some kind. I remember one year we opened the doors, and it was a an animated elephant, full size elephant in Christmas decor. It was for sale for fifty thousand dollars. So you walk into the original Christmas store, and you just like, I can't believe all of this. And you see the the sights and the sounds and the smells. It was just phenomenal every year. What was inside of the four walls of that building. But not once do I remember going to the original Christmas store. And and being overwhelmed with the true significance of what it meant for Jesus to enter the world. And so my hope for us as a church family is that coming to Matthew will help us set our focus as we head into this celebration of Jesus' birth. As to what we should really celebrate. What is significant about Jesus Entrance into the world. And Matthew here. In this genealogical record. This record of Jesus ancestors. Gives us at least two. Broad brush strokes. Of the significance. Of what took place. Over 2000 years ago. When Jesus came to earth. Born of a virgin. So I want us to look. At those two broad brushstrokes this morning. The first of which. We will find in verse 1. Verse 6. And verses 16 and 17. And that is this. That Jesus genealogy shows. That he is the promised Messiah. And fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants. Now I'm going to unpack that a bit. Talk about what that all means. But. That is one of Matthew's main purposes here in this genealogy to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now remember, the word Messiah is an actual Hebrew word. Translated means roughly the anointed one. It has an equivalent word, a parallel word in Greek, which is the word Christos or Christ. So the word Messiah mean in Hebrew means the same thing that the word Christ means in, in the, in Greek, the anointed one. So what Matthew hopes to do here is prove that Jesus is the Messiah. The long-awaited, promised king, descendant of David, who will reign over a promised kingdom forever and ever. As we come to Jesus' day, the average Israelite, the average Jew, would have been very aware that Messiah was coming. From the end of the writing of the Old Testament... Roughly about 400 B.C. To Jesus entrance into the world. Is a period where it is silent. As far as having new uh, scripture. It's called the intertestamental period. By Bible teachers. So that 400 year period of time. From the end of the writing of the Old Testament. To the beginning of the writing of the New Testament. During that 400 year period of time. A lot of emphasis was put on this concept of a coming Messiah. The Old Testament scribes, the, and the, the, the rabbis, the teachers of the law would have spent a lot of time developing the Old Testament scriptures, thinking about the Old Testament scriptures to a, such a point that by the time Jesus came on the scene, just the average person is Is looking for the Messiah. Now they were looking for a great political ruler. That would rid them from Roman rule. But they knew that Messiah was coming. In fact it was so commonplace. That when we come to the book of John. In the fourth chapter. When Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. Remember the Israelites felt like the Samaritans were second rate. They're half-breeds. They they don't represent true Israelite worship. They are intermarried with Canaanites. They, they aren't worthy. And Jesus started talking in John 4. With this woman at a well. A Samaritan woman. And she herself told Jesus in John 4.25. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. This concept of the Messiah is so common. That this Samaritan woman knew all about the fact that, that Messiah Messiah is, is supposed to come. So the first thing that a Israelite would ask. That a Jew would ask. If someone was claiming to be Messiah. The first thing they would want to know is, is he a descendant of David? That's why in Matthew chapter one, verse one, the very first thing we read is this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Very first thing. This is where Matthew begins. Now that phrase, The son of David runs all the way through the book of Matthew. It's a theme that Matthew develops. And we see it repeated over and over. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read some of the references. Matthew chapter 9 verse 27, chapter 12 verse 23, chapter 15 verse 22, chapter 20 verses 30 and 31, chapter 21 verse 9 and verse 15, chapter 22 verse 42. All talking about Jesus being the son of David. If you wanted to verify someone's lineage at the temple. Up to 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, were elaborate records of who begat who, who begat who. The genealogical records were kept kept at the temple. People could actually go and look up someone's lineage. It was not denied that Jesus was a son of David. Now it's important to remember here that when the Bible talks about someone being the son of someone else... It does not require that person to actually be in a father-son relationship. It could be a grandpa, grandson, great-grandpa, great-grandson, and so on. Could all be called a son of. That's why Jesus here is said to be a son of David. Even though there's multiple generations in between. We're going to talk about why this is so significant For you and for me. That Jesus is a son of David. But I want us to go back. And look at the biblical significance of that. Starting back in the book of 2 Samuel. So if you'd like to keep your finger in Matthew 1. And turn to 2 Samuel with me. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. We find a record Of what Bible teachers call the Davidic covenant. This binding agreement. That God binds himself to. By his very character. To do what he says he will do. This promise. This binding promise. That God made to King David. And God promised David. That one of his descendants. Would sit. On his throne over God's kingdom forever. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, meaning he passes away, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13 says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, excuse me, verse 16 says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So here's a promise that God makes, a binding promise, bound by his own character, saying to David that your descendant, Will sit on your throne forever and ever over a kingdom. Over a Davidic kingdom. We also see in verse 14. God says I will be a father to him. And he will be a son to me. So going clear back to 2 Samuel 7. The Jewish people started equating this anointed one. This Messiah as being a son of God. Because of that verse. God said he will be a son to me. The concept that we know of. That Jesus is the son of God. Finds its roots clear back in 2 Samuel 7. In this promise that God made to David. This theme. Of this covenant promise that God made to David. That theologians call the Davidic covenant. Runs through our Bibles. For example. You leave 2 Samuel and go to Psalm 89. We see a psalm about the covenant. And in Psalm 89 verse 29 it says. I will establish his descendants forever. His throne as the days of heaven. If we go to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. We find very, very familiar verses that we often read at Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And then look at this on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So the Old Testament scholars, the teachers of the law looked at passages like this and concluded, yes, this son of God, this anointed king. This descendant of David is coming. Everyone's excited about it. They're tired of being oppressed by the Romans. They're expecting Messiah to come. They're expecting him to be a great political ruler. That will rid them from Roman rule. Everyone's looking for Messiah. The son of David. It's not surprising that Matthew begins his gospel account. By saying... The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David. Even when we get into the apostle, into the epistles, the Apostle Paul continues to talk about this Davidic covenant and Jesus being its fulfillment. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, we read. That the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel of God in verse 1 verse 3. Concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. You see the New Testament writers as well saw it so significant. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of David, this one that was promised clear back in Second Samuel seven. In a few minutes, we'll talk about why that's so significant for you and for me. Down in verse six, it refers to J- to David as the King, King David will have a son, an anointed king, the Messiah. Now that's not all that Matthew tells us about Jesus in the very first verse. He's not only a descendant of David, it says he's the son of Abraham. Now, God not only made that, covenant promise to david he made a covenant promise to abram later called abraham he made that promise in genesis chapter 12 it's repeated in genesis chapter 15 genesis chapter 17 genesis chapter 22 and in chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 we find the first Annunciation of those promises. Those binding promises. That God made. Bound only by his His character. And it says. Go forth from your country. To Abram. From your relatives. From your father's house. To the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you all. I will curse. And in You, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see that same promise repeated in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Genesis 22, verse 18 says this. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. From God's plan, from eternity past, God's plan was always to have a people unto himself that was bigger than just Israel. And that has everything to do with you and with me. That truth ties the book of Matthew together. That God's plan is for Gentiles too. To be able to come and be part of God's kingdom. In fact as we come to the end of the book of Matthew. What is Jesus final call to the church. In the end of the book of Matthew in chapter 28 in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, it's always been part of God's plan to have His salvation, to have people from every tribe and tongue, every nation on the face of the earth, to be part of this kingdom that He will bring about. How does the fact that Jesus is a son of David and a son of Abraham, how does that affect you? How does that affect me? What significance does that bring to us this Christmas? Yesterday, my wife Barbara started a Christmas jigsaw puzzle with her mother. Who's been visiting. I chose to not take part in that effort. But those two ladies sat at a card table and throughout the day worked on this jigsaw puzzle. And last evening, roughly about seven thirty, they completed the puzzle. Almost. There was one piece missing. Oh, I don't know about you, but the way I'm wired, that's the kind of thing that would keep me up at night. I mean, it's just like, this just isn't right. The picture's not complete. You can't tell how it all fits together. Part of it's missing. It doesn't work. It's not, this just isn't right. And after 34 years of marriage, I must have worn off on the girl a little bit. Because she immediately got up and started to search. And she found it. And brought it to the table. And laid it right in the middle of that puzzle. And all everything was made right. (laughs) It was done. It was complete. You can see how everything fits together. How it all works together. As a perfect unit. And that's what Matthew does for us. In this genealogy. Because in this genealogy. We find. How we. Fit in. To God's plan. You see. Clear back. To 2000 BC. Clear back. God made a promise to Abram. Said I want you to leave your father's land. I want you to go to a place where I tell you. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth will find blessing. In that promise, through the seed of Abraham. Each and every one of us who are not part of Israel. Who are Gentiles. Have the potential of being part of God's kingdom. The Apostle Paul makes a big deal out of this in the book of Galatians. If you go to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 14. He actually equates Jesus Christ with being the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. When he says in order that in Christ Jesus. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, down in verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds. As referring to many. But rather to one. And to your seed. That is Christ. You see the apostle Paul recognizes. What Matthew recognizes. That Jesus Christ. Entrance into the world. Is the fulfillment. Of God's promise. His binding promise. That he made to Abraham. That through the seed. Of Abraham. Jesus Christ. every Every family on the earth. Has the potential of experiencing. Blessing. Through that son of Abraham. Jesus Christ. So that when we. Come to Christmas. And are celebrating Jesus birth. For those of us who are Christians. It's not just a celebration of a birthday. It's a celebration of our salvation. It's a celebration of the fact that. God's eternal purpose All along was to make salvation available to more than just his chosen people Israel. That from all along his plan. Was to have men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue. Throughout the world. To come and be part of his kingdom through faith. In the person of Jesus Christ the seed of Abraham. So that when we celebrate Christmas. Those of us who are Christians, we're celebrating salvation. Why is the Davidic covenant significant? Because those promises to David have everything to do about our eternal future. Remember God told David, your descendant is going to sit on your throne forever and ever over your kingdom And then we find that in God's plan, it's not only Israel that's part of that kingdom, but Gentiles are included as well. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that we too, not just Israel, we are kingdom people. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's why right after this genealogical record, when we're going to look at it next week, But as Jesus' birth is announced in verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So when we come to Christmas, for us, it's celebrating more than just a big birthday party. It's celebrating our salvation. Because God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to be born of a virgin so that he could die for us. There's one more broad brush stroke that I want us to see in this record of Jesus' ancestors, and we find that in verses three through six. And in it we find something very different in a genealogical record. In the ancient Near East, they would not typically include women. In a genealogical record, it would say, so and so was the father of this person, who was the father of this person, who was the father of this person. But in this genealogical record, Matthew includes four different women. He not only includes women, but he includes non-Israelites. Ruth, Tamar, Rahab are Gentiles. And we're going to see that not only does he include women and many of whom were not Israelites. He includes the names of people who in the community were known for their sin. What does all that have to say to us? Why does Matthew do this in this record of Jesus? And we see the second broad brush stroke that Jesus genealogy shows that God's working with people is all about his grace. When God works with people, it's always about grace. And just as he chose to work through a woman like Tamar. Who we know from Genesis 38 had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law so that she could give birth to a child. Or just as God chose to use Rahab in the ancestry of Jesus, a woman that we know from Joshua 2 and Hebrews 11 and James 2 was a harlot. We know from the New Testament of Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25. That she was a woman of faith. And just as God chose to use a woman like Bathsheba. Who committed adultery with King David. And King David committed adultery with her. And also committed murder. Murdering Bathsheba's husband. Just to try to cover up his sin. God chose by his grace. To do a work in all those people's lives. To use them in the actual bloodline. In the actual lineage of Jesus. You see, when God chooses to work with people. It's always about his grace. When God chooses to work in you and through you. It's always about his grace. I like to watch the Food Network. It's wholesome. It's good in more ways than one. And several years ago, they had a special featuring Trisha Yearwood. You may know Trisha Yearwood. She is Garth Brooks' wife. If you don't know who Garth Brooks is, I'm very concerned for you. I had somebody recently didn't know who George Strait was, and I thought, oh my stars, you've lived a sheltered life. Didn't know King George, didn't know Garth, ugh. So anyway, Trisha Yearwood is Garth Brooks' wife. And Trisha Yearwood was doing a feature on cast iron cooking. Now, I am from a long history of people who've used cast iron skillets. I actually possess my grandma Benton's cast iron skillet. It's the same cast iron skillet that when my grandma was out working, my dad and his two brothers would sneak into the kitchen and make homemade chocolate pudding in the skillet. They would get in trouble, but they didn't care. It's that same skillet that she used to make this phenomenal fried chicken that she started in the skillet and finished in the oven. Oh, a cast iron skillet can turn out really good food. So Trisha Yearwood wanted to get a cast iron skillet for her friend. Now you would think someone who is as famous as she is, as wealthy as she is, would just get on Amazon and... Order a nice expensive lodged cast iron skillet. And have it shipped. But that would be kind of a boring show. But that's what you think she would do. But no. What she did was went to a second hand store. And found an old cast iron skillet. That hadn't been useful for years. It was covered with rust. It was like who would ever want that ugly skillet. Skillet. It's just rusty. It's old. It probably has food particles in it. Somebody just got it at some estate sale. It had been thrown in there. No one had looked at it for years. And here that's the one she chose. Why? And what she did is she took that old rusty skillet. And chose it. And brought it into her kitchen. And started to do a work on it. And she got the rust cleaned off. Got it nice and clean. Showed how to season that cast iron skillet. And ended up having a useful tool. That she had transformed. And you know what? That's kind of what God does with us. Because each and every one of us. In God's eyes. If we were in this list. We'd be just They're just like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and David. We're just sinners. There's nothing special about any of us. There's nothing that would make God want us. Nothing in ourselves. But God loves us. And what he did that Matthew celebrates here. In fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises is he sent his one and only son to be born into a Jewish family the legal descendant rightful heir to David's throne and that baby was born of a virgin And lived a sinless life here on earth. And then died on a cross to pay the price for our sin. You see the Bible tells us each and every one of us are sinners. We've all thought things and done things that run contrary to God's revealed will. And contrary to his character. And God who is completely righteous. He is the standard of what is right. He's holy. There's no sin in him. He cannot just forget about our sin as his creator, as as his creation. Because it would violate his very character, it would violate his nature not to punish our sin. But what he did is he took all of his righteous wrath towards sin and poured it out on his one and only son. That son who was born so that he be able to die. For you and for me. And then he rose again from the dead. Proving that he is God. As Paul talks about in Romans 1. The Bible tells us there's good news. That when we. Stop depending on ourselves. Thinking that we can be a good enough person. To earn merit with God. And put our dependence on the person of Jesus Christ. Our trust in Jesus Christ. Our faith that Jesus is is God that he did die for me and rise from the dead when we do that his payment for sin is credited to the account of our lives that's what he has done for us and when through faith in him his payment is credited to us and we stand as forgiven if you're here this morning and you have never made that decision to put your belief in the person of Jesus Christ, I encourage you, there'd be no better celebration of Christmas than to do that today. One of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church, one of our elders will be right behind you in the prayer room. And back in the prayer room, we have a stack of books that uh, you can just go back and say, hey, can I have one of those books Pastor Steve was talking about? Or maybe you want to get one for a friend, to give to a friend. You can open up the first chapter in that little workbook and take out your own Bible and it will guide you through passages of scripture to help you see how you can know for sure that your sin is forgiven and that you are right with God. That you are a kingdom person. For those of us who have already made that decision, these next four weeks are weeks for us as Christians To truly celebrate. Because Jesus, as a son of Abraham, son of David, is our hope for our salvation as Gentiles. It's our affirmation that God's plan all along was to include people from every tribe and tongue into His family. And as we celebrate Jesus' birth, we celebrate our salvation. We celebrate our future. That we are kingdom people. That we will be in his kingdom. That Jesus genealogy shows. That he is the legal heir to the throne. In fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants. And his birth. Made it possible for his death. That made it possible for our life. In him. Father, we thank you for these verses and the encouragement regarding the true significance of Jesus' birth. We praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.